You know, last week we talked about uh, w- one of the ways that we grow in our vocabulary about God uh, is we hear stories from each other, how God's at work. And I feel like we've, we've already had the chance this morning to hear numerous stories of how God's at work in Honduras, in Johnny's life. Uh, and I hope, uh, you know, over lunch, in community groups, uh, coffees together, that we, we continue to do that, to share these stories of how God is at work in our lives. Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. That's it. That's how we end, we end every service with this. And I don't know if you know, but it's, it's how Paul ends the letter to second, or the second Corinthians letter that we have. It's how it ends. It's with this Trinitarian benediction. Every week we're sent into the world reminded that we go in the name of a God who is Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every week we are sent into our world reminded that God's grace his love and his fellowship are gifts that we receive from God every moment of our lives. So uh, we come to this week's question from the New City Catechism. This is where we're working our way through this um, kind of modern reworking of some ancient catechisms, some ancient questions and answers. The question this week is, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So you guys understand the Trinity, right? Good? I, uh, you know, I'm eager, I've I've been looking forward to kind of walking through this this catechism the way that we are, uh, trusting that it's going to be shaping us more as individuals and as a community into the image of Christ. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we can't at times push back against these questions and answers or wrestle with them a little bit. Uh, Last week, the question was, what is God? And the answer listed off a number of these attributes, right? His infinite goodness, his justice, his truth. But I don't know if you noticed, there there was one that was missing, love. It's kind of a big one. Right? God is love. That's actually a verse in the Bible. John, uh, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And I, I was reflecting on that uh, last week and, and this week. And this week, the, the question is a similar one to last week. What is God? And we're looking a little more deeply at what do we mean when we talk about the Trinity. And I think as, I, as I've thought about this and, and, and as I've been studying, God is love. And the Trinity is how. God is love. The Trinity is how God is love. Uh, Anytime that we talk about the Trinity, I imagine different analogies come to your mind, right? There's the egg. There's the yolk and the white and the shell, but it's all one egg. Or the bicycle wheel, maybe you've heard that. There's the hub and and the rim and the spokes that hold it together. And I don't know which one of those is supposed to be the Holy Spirit, but... That's an, another analogy for um, the Trinity, three in one, right? That's the language we use, three in one. Uh, I, as I was looking up analogies, I came across one that I, had not occurred to me, and it, came, it was in a blog post uh, warning pastors and priests to not use this analogy because it's heretical, and it was the analogy of the fidget spinner 
as an analogy for the Trinity. You've got three points, and it all spins together, and I don't know. I'm not sure how that would work. Uh, one of our sons desperately wants a fidget spinner, and we are resisting. <laughs> I want to share with you my personal, my personal favorite uh, analogy. Mario, I don't know if this is on. I took a class up at Regent College uh, on theology and the art from this um, Scottish theologian named Jeremy Begbie, who is a, he, he teaches at Cambridge. He's also a BBC concert pianist and I think oboe player. We're talking about the Trinity, and he walks over to the piano, and he goes like this. And I was like, brilliant! <laughs> I'm a musician, I love music, I, it, it's, I speak that language, and uh, because... What do, you, what do you hear? How do you experience that? You experience it as a chord, but there's clearly three notes. And each of those notes has a relationship to the other notes. It's called an interval in music, music speak. Uh, so the C, the one, has a relationship with the three, the one, and the five. Anyways, that for me has been a very helpful analogy but, ultimately, every analogy falls short a little bit, right? Um, and part of the challenge that we face with the Trinity is that we, it, we approach it as if it's this mystery to be cracked, this puzzle to be solved. And uh, either that or we just say, oh, it's too mysterious, and we throw up our hands and we don't really think about it at all, right? It sort of lives out there, and we don't really bother ourselves with it. Um, but the early church wrestled with the Trinity, with understanding how the, the, the nature of God. They wrestled with it. And what they were doing was they were trying to simply make sense of the facts of Scripture. Right? They were trying to simply make sense of what we found in the Scripture. And, and what we find is this. In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, Jesus, and the Gospels, the New Testament letters, uh, we see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all working in concert together, clearly with this intimate, loving relationship binding them together. And so how do we make sense of God is one, the Lord your God is one, and these three persons of the Trinity? And as the early church worked it out, uh, and it started to, to describe it as Trinity, uh, one of the, the commentators I read this week said it in a very helpful way. What they were doing was not cracking the mystery of the Trinity and explaining it so that there's no questions, but what the early church was doing was preserving the mystery of the Trinity. So I hope that we can do some of that this morning, that we can preserve together the mystery of the Trinity. At the core of this mystery is a relationship. A relationship that you and I are invited into, though we don't deserve it. Christ has made a way for us to be drawn up into this perfect, loving relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God is love in and of himself, and the Trinity is how. Trinity is how we see that. Uh, there can be a temptation, I think, to speak of God purely, or, or, or the, the people, the persons of the Trinity, purely by their function, what they do, right? So instead of 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you would say creator, redeemer, and sustainer or sanctifier. And there's, that can be helpful in understanding the full breadth of, of what God does for us in our salvation. God creates us, God redeems us and saves us, and God sustains us along the journey, growing us towards Christ. But um, just as with humans, if you reduce someone to their function, uh, you can lose the relationship. And I think that the fact that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit highlights for us that at the core, at God's core, is a relationship. God is completely sufficient on his own. Uh, He didn't need us in order to be able to love. He has existed in this loving relationship for all time. Uh, As I mentioned last week, when language fails us, art can help us. Um, There is a a wonderful icon. I'll push this down here. Drew, you can fix that later. It's an icon, I'll step out of the way, by a a Russian painter named Andrei Rublev. Um, It's several hundred years old, as as far as I understand. And it, any of the art teachers here can correct my my insufficient definition of an icon, but my understanding of an icon is uh, beyond just a painting. It's, It's meant as something that we are to look through to encounter the living God. So certainly we marvel at the technique and the beauty of it, but it's meant as something that as we meditate on it, as we consider it, uh, that we look through and we encounter the living God. This one goes by two different titles. It's either the Trinity or the Hospitality of Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis 18, um, we get a glimpse actually of the Trinity in the Old Testament. The Lord appeared to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre, while he, was look, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So while the, the setting that this scene is, is taken from is, is from the Old Testament, there is um, clear indication that it was intended to be a meditation on the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's lots of things, when you get up close, different things you can see and point out. You can look at the shape of how the the bodies of the three sort of form this circle in the middle. But the thing that captures my attention about this, and I'm just going to leave this up here. I'm going to let this icon do its work on y'all. So you can can sort of look at it and and hear my words, but let let the icon draw you into encountering God. Uh, The way that their heads are bowed with deference each one towards one of the other members of the Trinity. That's the thing that grabs me about this, that helps me understand a little bit of what the nature of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is. We often speak of inviting Christ into our hearts. Um, And there is some truth to that, but the, the bigger picture is that we are invited into this relationship. We are invited ourselves into this perfectly loving community between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is a bit disorienting for us because we like to think that we are at the center of things uh, and that God is, we add a little God to our lives uh, to make things better, right? God's like a little Splenda packet. Sweetens things up a little bit. Uh, But we see... 
within the, this, within the Trinity, that God is completely sufficient, and yet, out of love for us, invites us into this perfectly loving community. The, the nature of the relationship uh, in the Trinity has also been described as a dance, right? Each one leading and each one following the other. And that we are invited into the dance of that relationship. All right. We're going to leave that up there. Let it do its work. The Trinity is, no matter, again, uh, you know, I, don't, I have no intentions of trying to crack the mystery of the Trinity, but instead trying to preserve the mystery of the Trinity. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have practical implications in our lives as we consider what Scripture says about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first thing that I think uh, is an implication based on the fact that God exists in the Trinity is that we are made for relationship. Part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God is that we are created for relationship. Now, this is not to say that we are all created as extroverts, correct? Introverts, if you agree, don't say anything, just sit there <laughs> silently. No, we, uh, we, we live into more, most into our image-bearingness of God, if I can say it that way, um, when our relationships are right. Certainly our relationship with God, when that's made right, but, but also our relationship with his creation, especially the people part of his creation, and I think part of, uh, part of the pain that we feel when a relationship goes sour for whatever reason uh, is that it, it, it hits on the core of who we are as made in the image of God, that we're made for relationship. And when relationships are off or are broken or are damaged, uh, that gets right at the core of who we are. This is why Jesus ties the worship of God to the way that we treat each other, right? He says, if you're on your way to the temple and uh, you've got your sacrifice and you're ready to worship God, but you remember, oh, my brother's got something against me. I've got something against my sister. He says, leave it right there. Go and make things right. Then come and worship God. The two are intimately linked. So that's one implication. We are made for relationship. The second one has a lot of different ways, I think, that we can live it out. And, and it's this, that at the, at the heart of God is this relationship of perfect love, but also perfect power. And the way that God expresses that power and uses that power is service. And this for us becomes a model for how we are to express the power that we've been given. The, uh, the New Testament, the, the language of the Holy Spirit, the language for the Holy Spirit, both by Jesus and Paul, kind of wherever you find it in the New Testament, is language of power, right? The Holy Spirit comes and fills us with power, a power that comes from being part of this relationship. I mean, this is, God created everything that is. There is nothing more powerful than God, and that power is available to us through the Holy Spirit. It's power to resist temptation when we find ourselves struggling with the same sin. It's a power to face suffering with courage. But I think one of the most profound implications of 
being people that live out of this, this place of power is that it's a power to serve. This is what we see expressed in the relationships of the Trinity. This, they use their power. They're, they're constantly pointing to the other, right? It's the, it's the tilted head. Glorifying the other. The Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit points back to the Son and goes where the Father sends him. We see this uh, through, through Jesus, fully God and fully human, who didn't cling to his deity, didn't cling to being God, but instead came and expresses his power. How? By, by washing his disciples' feet. By dying on the cross, by giving up his life. This has profound implications for our marriages, right? The core uh, ethic of Christian marriage is mutual submission. This is how Paul begins this long instruction on how husbands and wives need to treat each other. Mutual submission. Husbands submitting to their wives. Wives submitting to your husbands. This is the case because this is the way that these guys relate. (laughs) Mutually submitting to each other. Our marriages can mirror the Trinity when we live that way, when we use the power that we've been given for the sake of the other. And and it's not just marriages, right? This is friendships and relationships with coworkers and neighbors. This also has impact on how we work, right? Are we we centrally concerned that, that we get the credit, that we get the glory when we perform at work, when we do our job well? How do we respond when we don't get that credit, when we don't receive that acknowledgement? Uh, maybe you could think about the goal of your business, right? Is it the utter destruction of all competition? In certain industries, that certainly seems to be, certainly seems to be the case. Or perhaps through our work, through the power that we've been given in our vocations, uh, are we to serve? Are we to use this power to serve our clients, our customers, people who work for us? And then what do we do with uh, the money that we make from our work? What do we do with that capital? How do we use this form of power, right? Economic power. What do we do with that? Maybe it takes the form of, of just giving it away. Maybe that's what we do. Maybe it's, it's missionaries. Maybe it's nonprofits. Maybe it's AJS, right? Um, maybe it's the local church. But perhaps also... It's reinvesting that in the business so that more people are served by what you're doing and more people have the opportunity to work a meaningful job. This also could be a way that we take this power we've been given, this economic power, and we serve others with it. There's lots of ways. I hope, I hope your imaginations are starting to fire off with different ways that the power that you've been given by the Holy Spirit because you've been invited into this relationship that is full of power and love, the different ways that you can exercise that in your world. This also gives us a vision, uh, a vision for leadership that is so compelling and one that is so desperately needed in our world today. Um, You don't have to read many of the headlines to know that this kind of leadership, this leadership that understands the power it has is for service, that kind of leadership is sorely lacking and missing in much of our world. 
But this is the way our God has chosen to lead. And this is the kind of leadership and the kind of life that he invites us into as well. I want to read, I want to close by reading a passage from John 14. If you, if you have time today, uh, sometime this week, would you sit down and read John 14 to 17? Four chapters, just all in one sitting. It's the Last Supper, the, the, the Upper Room Discourse, where Je- it's basically Jesus' last words to his disciples in the Gospel of John before uh, he's taken away to be crucified. And it is chock full of the language of the Trinity. It is just Father, Son, Spirit, Advocate, all blended in together. It's marvelous. Um, and I think, it, I think the sheer quantity of it, and I mean, it's, it's also, it's just one of my favorite passages. It's beautiful. Um, I'm going to read a small portion of that uh, to lead us to the table this morning. And just keep, keep your ears open for this language of Father, Son, Advocate, Spirit, and the way that they relate to each other, the kind of relationship that's at the heart of God that you and I are invited into and that you and I are invited to mirror in our own lives. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. Again, I'll read that again. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the invitation that you have extended to each one here. That through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, you have made a way for us to participate in this perfect community of love and power and grace and service that has existed from all time between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, what a mystery. Draw us further into that mystery. As we go into our weeks, would you be firing off our imagination as we, as we dream and think about what, what does it mean that I am I'm invited into this relationship? I'm drawn into this the center of the heart of God. What does that mean for my neighbor? What does that mean for how I am to love my neighbor? For my work, my kids, 
my parenting. And Lord, give us a freedom, trusting that you already are perfectly loving everyone and that the weight of loving them has been lifted from our shoulders, but rather it's that invitation to join you in the work you're already doing. Lord, we are grateful, especially for, for Johnny and his, uh, the gift that he has been to us these years. Would you bless him, lead him, as you lead all of us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.